We're involving the audience and looking at science and rhetoric's involvement and usability. Welcome to Summary and Synthesis. Greetings and how do? This is English 730, user-centered research for technical communicators, summary and synthesis. I am your host, Emily Kuznar-Laird, and in our last episode, we summarized and synthesized books by user experience experts Steve Krug and Leah Bewley. This week, we're going to take user experience one step further and really look at the relationship of science and rhetoric within usability testing. We'll summarize and synthesize pieces by some recognizable names, including Patricia Sullivan, James Porter, Robert Johnson, Michael Salvo, and Meredith Zodaway. I may be skipping a bit to synthesis here, but we'll see a consistent thread throughout our authors of the ways researching users or user experience can require shifts in our approach to methodology and strategy. So you're gonna hear some of those notions as we summarize our authors. And like I said, I'm jumping a bit, but I think one thing to keep in mind when we think about user experience or user research or usability, right, is we have these scientific notions and we're all experienced with dealing with scientific research and methodologies and these formulas that really showcase how those researchers got to the results they did. So they're replicable. So we can take that formula and reproduce that study. Now, we're going to jump into Sullivan just a hair here when I say Pat Sullivan is going to tell us user experience can be one-offs. It can be performed in one-offs. So it's going to be sometimes situations where it's a genuine encounter and it's something that may not be replicable. And we have to make sure we're remembering that as we go into user experience so we're not creating these intense containers for ourselves. All right, I'm going to go ahead and hit pause on myself because I am going into synthesis right now and I hear it. Okay, guys, but you know what time it is. Turn up the bass if you have to because that funky music is about to play. Let's summarize. Robert Johnson's 1997 piece, Audience Involved, toward a participatory model of writing, adds to the theoretical taxonomy of audience through the inclusion of a third model of audience, Audience Involved. Previously, contemporary composition studies only conceptualized audience as addressed or invoked. Johnson is going to argue for the case of audience involved through usability methods and two case studies. Johnson's focus on audience theory is a topic central to technical communication. Johnson will state, The very nature of technical communication begs for conceptions of audience because technical writers are fundamentally charged with the responsibility of translating information from one context to another. Technical communication was the OG of audience advocacy, of which Johnson cites Mills, Walter, and Dodge's early contributions. The audience is not just something a writer dreams up, and a refashioned model of writing focused on user inclusion is a necessity. Johnson discusses a more recent community model of discourse creation, focusing on collaboration and multiple authors. Yet community, within this practice, still excludes the actual user, focusing instead on the collaboration of those within the community. 
Yes, the user gets no respect as a member of the community. Johnson will go on to discuss technological knowledge from the history of technology and from the discipline of rhetoric, where technological knowledge is defined as productive knowledge. Johnson touches on the three issues commonly debated about technological knowledge. Technological determinism, science versus technology, and social construction of technology. The issue of technological determinism holds that technology is autonomous of human agency and that if any agency does exist, it is within the technology itself. This viewpoint disempowers the user, stripping them of any technological influence. The issue of science versus technology argues that science produces new knowledge while technology merely applies this newfound knowledge. Technology takes a back seat and science drives the bus. The user is then a hitchhiker, occasionally picked up and taken in whatever direction science is headed. Even though they clearly called shotgun, the user will sit in the back seat with technology while technology will tell them where they're going. The issue of social construction of technology argues technological development and innovation from a socially constructed perspective are community driven and thus negotiated. Such negotiations include not only the developers and inventors, but also the users. Social construction of technology offers new avenues to theories of knowledge production by investigating a new builder of knowledge, the user. At this point, Johnson is going to bring rhetoric into the conversation by discussing the epistemological taxonomy of Aristotle, theoretical, practical, and productive knowledge. Of the three, we're going to focus on productive knowledge. Aristotle uses architecture to define the concept of art of making. In the Aristotelian concept of productive knowledge, the end is in the use of the product. Atwell and Lauer, 1995, are going to use this to explain the end of the art of house building is neither the builder's use of the art nor the house itself, but rather the use made of the house by those whom it was constructed. So technological knowledge in rhetorical terms is not the creator or the end product, it's how it's used. Johnson goes on to explain if we view technological knowledge as productive knowledge, then we are viewing technology through the user, not just through the system developer or the system itself. Johnson then transitions to an overview of usability, advocating we view usability as something included throughout the production stages of a product's development. Valuing usability this way also advocates for the early and necessary inclusion of technical communicators within development teams. We're more than just scribes who write up technical communication. We can implement user knowledge and understanding into the development process. Johnson will then offer two examples of audience inclusion in development processes by way of a voicemail instruction project and a low fidelity prototyping project. Both examples offer clarity into the essential collaboration with users in a development process. Ultimately, the involvement of actual users produces stronger products. Johnson states that based on his examples, it is probable that writer-user interaction leads to stronger advocacy for user-centered design of computer products, a goal all technical communicators should strive to reach. Including the user in the development of discourse and technological development creates a ripple effect of progressive possibilities. 
All right, guys, that's going to wrap up our summary of Robert Johnson. And I don't know about you, but I could go for a little Patricia Sullivan right now. Let's summarize. All right, guys, beckon, encounter, experience, the danger of control, and the promise of encounters in the study of user experience by Patricia Sullivan. Patricia Sullivan's chapter begins with an analogy which sets the scope for her argument of user experience encounters. Sullivan transports me back to sophomore year of college, a wilder time, where within a fantastic social life, I recall reading Homer's The Odyssey and the tale of Odysseus. So Circe has warned Odysseus not to be drawn in by the songs of the sirens, sort of like me and Sephora. He is given beeswax, which he breaks down and provides to his men to fill their ears with. Odysseus, wanting to safely experience the sirens, and as advised by Circe, is strapped to the mast of his ship so that he may experience the siren songs but not actually encounter them, which could be drawing him in and then he'd be smashed amongst the rocks, right? Encounters are important to understanding users, but they are increasingly controlled by research. Beckoning behavior is restricted, and authentic encounters locked down by constraint. Sullivan will advocate for allowing ourselves to truly experience user interactions, let users move us, disagree with us, shape us, and even like the sirens, toss us on the rocks. Alas, blocking user experience through rigid structure and over-controlling encounters puts usability in a corner, and no one puts baby, I mean, usability in a corner. Modern expansion of engaging interfaces beckons us to look deeper into user experience, finding new ways to decipher how user experience occurs. However, this massive growth in digital landscapes is unsurprisingly accompanied by increased procedural control, the sterilization of user experience. Researchers apply control within their studies for justification of findings within systematic procedural methods, which allow for replication. But when we apply these filters to user experience, we essentially remove the experience. Nonetheless, Sullivan discusses the numerous control mechanisms used in user experience. These are gonna include sorting experience into domains, identifying and interrogating roles users play, establishing and maintaining boundaries, analyzing themes and metaphors that can explain interviews and events. Qualitative work such as interview or observation is then scientifically controlled because it's dangerous. That's right, danger is qualitative research's middle name. In response to this danger, Sullivan suggests that user experience research becomes open to the study of encounters drawing on the social science of ethnography to make this connection with user experience and encounters. Ethnographers, to quote Sullivan, attribute cultural difference to point of view and values. There also are differences in experience when we add contemporary user experience to the mix. The modern technological landscape creates an extensive network of virtual encounters between users of diverse backgrounds and cultures. Exposing these user experiences requires research to open up to encounters with the user. Applying stringent control to research sets filters expectations, which not only filter the user, but filter the research. These controls can also establish preconceived notions of who the user is before they've even identified themselves. 
Observing the relationship of social circles within the digital realm offer valuable insights into user encounters and experiences. Sullivan offers an assortment of examples of newer digital projects which divulge these new user experiences. Life logging software, which aims to record parts of an individual's life, churches with Wi-Fi in their bell towers, location-based gaming, hey, didn't we play Pokemon Go for at least a week? The introverts playing Dragon Quest IX, no shade, fandoms, and the worst design in the entire world, the co-motion shape-changing bench, sweet, Pete, if I'm in public and the bench I'm on starts shifting so I'm sliding closer to the person beside me, I'm throwing that bench across the floor harder than Bobby Knight threw that chair, okay? Now one newer area of user experience and encounter which was especially relevant to me aside from all the anime fandom videos I make in my free time, totally joking, was the social media morning and platforms for sharing. I've unfortunately had friends from high school pass away and when it happens, we do all come together on social media to mourn by sharing stories and posting photos and even videos on their Facebook page, for example. Social media has really become these personalized and collaborative time capsules, which we digitally fill with thoughts, memories, photos, experience, encounters. Some people even use their social media as a platform, as Sullivan mentions, for opinions, politics, airing of grievances. Now, when this is performed, there is actually a phenomenon called the anti-encounter, where I unfollow you because I don't care that the restaurant you dined at wouldn't let you double down on Groupons or that you somehow had to go to the hospital but only shared a cryptic image of an IV in your arm. Not interested. Memes, GIFs, or cat photos. That's what I agreed to when I accepted your friend request. All right. Let's wrap this up, because clearly I'm getting punchy. We need to be open to encounters in UX. We can't tie ourselves to the mass and just listen. We need to actually encounter. By doing so, we build a broader understanding for user experience. All right, guys, up next is on theory, practice, and method toward a heuristic research methodology for professional writing by Patricia Sullivan and James E. Porter. Let's summarize. Porter's chapter begins with an old argument over authority, theory versus practice. Taking it one step further, the authors also examine how this argument relates to researchers' concepts and applications of methodology. The authors state just as theory often purports to explain practice, methodology is presumed to allow privileged observation of practice. Research methodology is seen as static and confined by strategies when really the authors point out it's designed out of particular situations which it argues for within studies. Next, the authors tackle the theory practice binary, which originates from the search for authority in professional writing or another age old rivalry, technical writers versus professional writing teachers. And we all remember the big HBO pay-per-view event when the technical writers went up against professional writing teachers. It was wild. It went the distance all 12 rounds. I lost a lot of money on that event. Won't say who I bet on. Okay, so from this notion of ownership, an almost imaginary draft by way of compartmentalizing occurs. 
So the professional writing teachers or academics, they've drafted theory. And the technical writers or workplace, they draft practice. Except compartmentalization it just won't work because both theory and practice have limitations. The authors will state theory in the common and various ways it is perceived and employed is by itself inadequate to account for the particular, what we know as practice. The authors will quote Phelps who states, practice disciplines theory by demonstrating its limits. So we can't segregate theory alone and practice alone. We must unify them instead toward the greater good, praxis. Praxis is both a practical rhetoric and a research perspective willing to critique both theory and practice by placing both in dialectic tension, which can then allow either to change. So they're working together, no longer rivals their teammates, an epic duo, Batman and Robin, Han and Chewie, Wayne and Garth, Kolsch, Beer and My Bloodstream, all successful together. But where does that leave method? Now Sullivan and Porter will state methodology is being treated as a sterile application which governs practice. Yet, by using it this way, we strip methodology of its knowledge-making possibilities. The authors will then catalog some conventional approaches to method in workplace studies in an effort to argue research methodologies should function as a middle ground between theory and practice as a heuristic set of filters and ultimately as praxis. The authors describe the procedures of method-driven research, problem-driven research practice, problem-driven research theory, and problematize method multimodality. The authors then discuss the value of not just accepting and applying static methods, but instead adjusting methods to the setting and theory. Ultimately, we're advised not to see theory, practice, and method as these confining warrants, but instead using them to apply different epistemologies as an activity of praxis, creating research that will function heuristically. All right, guys, so our next piece is Johnson, Salvo, and Zotaway's User-Centered Technology and Participatory Culture, Two Decades, Beyond a Narrow Conception of Usability Testing. Let's summarize. So our authors offer reflections and defenses of their previous professor, Patricia Sullivan's earlier piece. The article is also peppered with snippets of a recent interview Zotaway conducted with Sullivan, which offers insightful commentary on her earlier work's impact and her perception on the state of usability now and in the future. The authors defend Sullivan's earlier work and proclaim her to be one of the OGs of pointing out usability's necessary inclusion throughout a design process, not just at the end. The article will delve into to differing viewpoints between usability as science or as a combination of science and rhetoric, usability was traditionally thought of as a scientific activity, including strategic methods and quantitative measurements. Now, the technical communication gang showed up to disrupt the dominant thinking of usability as a science because the tech com folks brought rhetorical art to the party. In regard to rhetoric, Sullivan is going to discuss the value and importance of contextual research within usability testing. Interfaces, she explains, are a one-off, as the problems will be specific and non-replicable. In this concept, usability practitioners may have to part with thinking usability is strictly scientific and simply offer the best advice they can 
based on the situation. Essentially, the authors state, articulate the context and limits of testing and be critical of any findings. Sullivan will assert two elements to usability, one scientific and one rhetorical, but she will add a third, the engineer as practitioner at the site of technology transfer. The authors then state, usability is at its best when it offers actionable information, as it must, on contingent and contextual data in a timely manner. Technical communication is interdisciplinary, working conjunctively with engineers and other fields. Within usability testing, where practitioners rely on rhetoric and science through contingent and contextual occurrences to offer knowledge, insight, or actionable items to the disciplines they support. Rhetoric is about contingency, the article states. And so in a world of successful usability, rhetoricians and engineers come together to build a bridge between culture and science. Usability connects science to culture through various contexts, contingencies, rhetorical situations, and probability. Sullivan's work then and now and the author's piece show the value of usability in this information dissemination and the critical component played by technical communicators within usability. All right, guys, we made it through the summaries. It's time to synthesize. So this week's readings really touch on the relationship between rhetoric, in science within the field of usability, as well as the discussion of user-centered research, some more best practices. We hear a lot of our authors from week two kind of resonate again. So Sullivan's Beckon presents us with the notion of enc encountering the user or being open to encounters with the user. And this is going to drive us back to social constructivism in week one and meaning making through interaction and engagement. We'll also be reminded of both Krug, but especially Bewley's recommendations with user engagement and encounters. Bewley really championed this idea of authentic encounters through interviews, both internally with the team you're collaborating with and externally with users. And she talks at great length about listening through one-on-ones and group meetings. And remember, Bewley is going to always advise us to think about what we heard or evaluate post-conversation. And I just see so many of those parallels with her and Pat Sullivan this week, who are really saying, you have to be open. If you wanna know your user, you need to get in there and have a conversation with your user. You can't put all these stringent guidelines on yourself. You need to go in there and really experience what they're experiencing. Walk a mile in their shoes. Now this notion draws us into Johnson Salvo and Zotaway's article this week as well. So those authors discuss Sullivan's regard to rhetoric and the value and significance, significance of contextual research within usability testing. Now remember, Sullivan talks about interfaces as one-offs with specific contextual problems. Usability practitioners must then part with this concept of usability being strict science when really it's situational. It's the interviews, the one-on-ones, the real conversations that Bewley suggests it should include. Usability practitioners, as we hear in Johnson Salvo and Zodoy's article, must simply offer the best advice they can based on the situation. It can be scientific, right? But it also needs to be human and human moments are not always replicable. We've all heard someone say, you just had to be there. 
because you did. You had to be there. It wasn't going to be something we could ever replicate. As technical communicators, we're trying to offer whomever we're collaborating with useful and knowledgeable information about the user. You cannot do that with stringent control. So we've all been to a job interview where you're asked focus, controlled questions about position-specific topics. You are, however, asked things like, what do you like to do when you're not at work? Because the employer wants to understand who you are as a person outside of their walls and how that might translate into your work performance. Also how that might translate into how you engage with everyone else, right? User experience. Just like as technical communicators, we wanna understand the context and variables that relate to user experience. Of course, to do this, we have to go into it with the knowledge that theory, practice, and methods used in our research must be willing to shift. Porter and Sullivan address this in their chapter from this week, which frames up this concept that theory, practice, and methods have to function as praxis. I'm kind of toying with this dinner party analogy of this, so let's try it and say, every Saturday night, you host a gathering of six friends. Open some wine, a charcuterie plate, you're a fancy group. Now you've done this every Saturday night, so you, through theory of what your friends like to eat and drink, methods and serving them in your cute little dining room, and then practice of watching them engage and enjoy the food, you know how to operate your gathering, okay? So let's say of your six friends, two suddenly enter into relationships, and now on Saturday night, they wanna bring their new person to the party so that they can meet everyone, and you're like, absolutely, bring them. But now, your theory, practice, and methodologies have to change. Your little dining room is too small to hold the new additions. So you'll have to pick a new space in your home. You know your friends love red table wine, but will the new guests? Better buy white, red, and a six pack of assorted craft beer just in case. Finally, the charcuterie board is probably going to need to grow a little bigger. But in what way? More meat? Cheese? Olives? Hopefully we're not having vegans over, okay? All those theories, practices, and methodologies will need to shift and adjust so we can find new best practices for our gathering. Now let's keep going with our social gathering scenario and usher in Robert Johnson's notion of audience involved. He will discuss this Aristotelian concept, productive knowledge. Applying that to our dinner party, it's ultimately about the experience everyone has at the gathering. It's not about me, the host, or a room filled with assorted table wines and a charcuterie board. It's about those engaging with that space and having a good old time. But how can we make our gathering successful? Johnson is going to tell us we need to involve our audience throughout the process. So you find out your friends are bringing dates to the gathering. It's time to have a conversation, an encounter, a la Bewley and Sullivan. Engage, call your friends and inquire about what their dates are like. Are they vegan? No? Okay, phew, thank God but keep them and everyone else in the loop. Engage your audience throughout the process, utilizing collaboration and rhetorical context to bridge that gap between party planning science and cultural appeal. Let's fall back once more to social constructivism, which states, knowledge does not consist of objective truths to be transmitted via media, but formative, developmental, and constructed explanations of humans engaging in meaning-making processes. Within user experience, we appeal to usability testing as technical communicators using a scientific and rhetorical mindset. We must always bear in mind, according to Sullivan and Porter, human action is situated action, which represents the limits of theory. 
We must engage. We must encounter. Listen, interact, and include our users throughout the process for successful user experience research. And we'll conclude there. This has been Summary and Synthesis. Thank you for listening and have a great week.